Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Buddhist Center podcast with me, Chandra Dasa. And I'm here this week with my friend and colleague, Kusla Devi, for another excellent, most excellent, bodacious episode. Bodacious is a reference that some people won't get, but look it up on Google. Bodacious. Another excellent episode about what it is to live a Buddhist life in the 21st century in 2022. Why do people do it? What does it mean? Not just in one culture, but in many cultures. And it's really, of course, centered around the story of people's lives. What's moving in hearing people tell the story of their life is usually that it's centered around what matters most to them. And that's definitely the case today. We're going to be meeting some friends from Poland, from Krakow Buddhist Center. You'll hear from in a minute. As usual, if you enjoy today's stories, if you've enjoyed previous episodes, please do tell your friends. Send it through your socials. If you really, really like it, give us a good review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever. That's how people hear about podcasts. There are 10 million billion squillion podcasts now about just about everything. And we're up against true crime dramas. So without your help, we've got no chance. So please do support the podcast, like us, share us, etc. Anyway, I'll bring in Kusla Devi now, who's joining our podcast team. Welcome, Kusla Devi. Hi, Chandradasa. Yeah, it's really good to be here today. I know you'll introduce our guests a bit more fully in a moment, but it's very lovely to see you both. I have been over to Sangaloka, the retreat centre in Krakow, a few years ago. It was very lovely today, knowing that we were going to have this conversation, actually, and remembering my time there. Yeah, welcome. Welcome to you. And hooray, welcome to our guests today, Sadjala Nityabandhu. Neither of whom I've seen for a number of years, certainly in real life, but it's absolutely lovely to see your faces again shining in the evening from Poland. Thanks for joining us. Hello, Chandradasa, and hello, Kusala Devi. Thank you very much for inviting us, first of all, and for this excellent introduction. What came to my mind is I don't know if I will be able to answer all those questions that you just mentioned at the beginning. How does the Buddhist life look like, etc. But hopefully we can say a bit about how we practice here in Poland with the Polish Sangha in the conditions that we're now found ourselves in with the Ukrainian war, post-pandemic, etc. So really happy to be here. Yes. Hello, Kusala Devi. Hello, Chandra Dasa. Again, thanks for the introduction. And yeah, let's let's speak. <laughs> it's lovely to speak to you again, Nitsubandu. As soon as I see your face, Nishibandu, every single time I remember a quite well-known photograph, if you're a kind of Triratna Buddhist at least, of Sangharakshita, the founder of our particular community, snipping this lovely ribbon in Sangaloka in Krakow, and you standing there just looking so pleased that it was finally happening. And I happen to know you from the past. I know that you've put so much love and work into this project, so it's really delightful to be zooming into you now. So we're really here today to have a conversation about, as you say, Sadajala, not just what's happening around the Ukrainian situation. That is important, and we're going to bring that out. But actually, it's really great just to have an update about the Dharma in Poland, which for some people, they may know very little or nothing about. This podcast really came about because we'd been a bit in touch around an online event that we did in Triratna just to mark what was happening in Ukraine and how it affected all of the Sanghas, particularly around Europe in the East. Then our friend Tara Dakini, who unfortunately couldn't be here today, ran a really fantastic fundraiser to provide funds for the Polish Sangha to help meet the needs of some of the refugees. I think based initially on her seeing a video of your friend Pala at the railway station, just witnessing people arriving in huge numbers from Ukraine. The first thing that really occurred to me was that you've been, I suppose, having an experience of still working with friends, right? It's not like you've become a charity focused on Ukraine. You're working with your friends to do work that's just about alleviating suffering. 
You were saying before we started this conversation, you just come back from retreat. And for some people, it might be they seem like two completely different worlds. These people go on retreat and they meditate. You know, that image of Buddhists being all about peace and being removed from the world or at some sort of distance from the world. But here you are also involved with this public Buddhist center that's engaging with a crisis. So how has all that been for you as a set of friends working together? There is a truth in it that Buddhists are going somewhere on retreats, being away from the world and creating some kind of conditions that can look like at first as artificial and have nothing to do with real life. But actually, if we want to be involved in the world and acting for the benefit of others, we need to create conditions like retreats to be able to find an inspiration and disconnect from all those distractions that actually doesn't allow us to live an authentic life. That's what it means to me to go on retreat, actually to connect with myself on a deeper level, to connect with people in the Sangha on a deeper level and find a source of a deeper inspiration that then helps me to come back and to support others and to continue my own practice. So in a way, we do need both things to act in the world and sometimes to just leave the world, even for a few days. For me, actually, that last retreat gave me a lot of power and strength and inspiration. It was a very beautiful retreat. What was also beautiful about it, I think for the first time I've connected with deeper joy of being able to witness other people's practice, how other people go deeper in their own practice in our Sangha. And that was amazing. Also working as Nichibandu was cooking on that retreat and me and Padmasida were leading the retreat, which is a change of roles after so many years of Nichibandu being up front of things happening in the Sangha. Yeah, in a similar vein, I really love this model that we have in our Buddhist community that we go away, but we also do come back. We're not monks and nuns which is also, I think, very necessary. We live in Krakow, which is a very Catholic country, and this city full of churches and monasteries. And I feel by the very fact that they are there, they don't have to do anything. But I think people, especially guests, visitors, often comment that the city's got a particular atmosphere. And I think it's partly the fact that there are monks and nuns sitting there behind these walls and praying or whatever they do. I think it affects the city. And I think similarly with our community, maybe not so similarly, but like I said, I like the fact that we're not closed behind walls. We do have this time off to go and practice. I see what happens to people who've been away for a while, come back empowered. And, you know, it's it's very easy to burn out and stuff. If we want to do things long term, we need to look after ourselves as well. Plus, when you're on a retreat, something happens, especially in this situation. The war in Ukraine opens our eyes to what the world can be like, what people can be like to each other, even people who've been previously very close to each other. On a retreat, we're not just meditating, we're actually with each other and creating this sometimes amazing atmosphere. And sometimes people say this is for the first time in their lives. They've been feeling like that on this retreat, that it was possible to actually drop a mask or, you know, be themselves or whatever. So it's, we're not isolating from the world. We create a sort of world in miniature, which for a while it shows us what's possible. And then we come back and try to apply it. Just adding to what Nietzsche Bande said, what came to my mind was Vanta Sangharakshita, who's our founder of our community, who said a blueprint of a new world. In a way, it feels like creating such an intensive context for our Sangha, creating conditions like we create on the retreat, feels like trying to create a blueprint for a new world which is not disconnected from a world. It's actually taking something very valuable to the world. 
I suppose one thing that occurs to me listening to you is that you're creating such a strong base for the work that you're involved with. Can you give people listening just a sense of what that engagement is when you're coming back from this place of friendship and community where you can be yourselves and come together and take part in something very beautiful, very resourcing? What is it you're doing as a community in terms of the refugee situation? What is the work you're engaging with that is not abstract blueprint? It's, this is how you do it. First of all, I want to say that we try to do something, but it's very little. It's not false modesty or anything like that. It's really important for me not to create an impression that what we do is large scale or anything like that. Yeah, Because I think people do sometimes get that impression, and I really wouldn't like that to fall into this sort of, we're so great doing this. When the war broke out, it affected us very strongly and we believe in what we do as Buddhists and we could carry on doing just the Buddhist center work, you know, teaching people to meditate and teaching the Dharma, Buddhist teachings and so on. And we have done over the years, even though various crises were going on, we weren't engaging that much with the world, but this time it felt different. We had to do something. We couldn't just stand and look on while there were millions of people passing through the border and through the city and so on, especially in the first weeks. The situation was quite dramatic. I mean, I think people did find a place to sleep and they weren't hungry, but the whole country really responded. I found it one of the most beautiful periods in my life. It sounds crazy, but actually most horrible things were going on behind our border. And at the same time, this generosity with which Polish society responded I mean, really, I am proud of, of Poles, of Poland at this time. We felt we had to do our bit. The first idea was, well, the Buddhist center, we use it mostly in the evenings, sometimes in the mornings, rarely at weekends. So there's, I don't know, 80 square meters of space that's empty. And we decided just to pick up a few people from the train station. That was actually Satyajawa's idea. One evening we went to the station after a Buddhist class that we did and we thought we could take five people just to give them shelter at the Buddhist center. And when we arrived there, there was crowds in various places at these reception points and very quickly we came across a family of three, child, boy of 10, mother and grandmother. And then we fought another two people because <laughs> we fought five. But then Sadajala came back from another reception point and she said, actually, there are three with a dog. Can we take them? <laughs> and I said, well, of course. It was a very important moment. You meet these people face to face. It's like very quickly you take in. You get very moved, but you don't want others to be overwhelmed by the emotions. When you hear they're coming from Mariupol, you don't want to overwhelm people with your emotions. But we made a strong connection, I think. And I think for them coming, to a strange city, meeting these people. The second family of three that we also took on, it's mother with two daughters and a little bulldog called Simon. They were happy for a start that we took them on because nobody wanted to take Simon. <laughs> we used the Buddhist center as a shelter, as accommodation, so we turned it into a hostel. I just find it really moving hearing that. I also work in a Buddhist center here in Nottingham, and I know how much work it is to run a Buddhist centre. There's a lot that has to happen behind the scenes, as it were, to be able to, like you say, reach out, offer meditation and classes and things. And when I heard you were also on top of that, wanting to offer a safe space for refugees, I did think, gosh, how is that for you? How are you managing to hold both of those things? Or is it that you're inviting your Sangha to contribute as part of their Buddhist practice? Well, it is a challenge. It's not an easy thing for us to do. And we've started with a bigger team and now it's mainly me and Nichebandu and Shantipala who sometimes joins us and we discuss things and make decisions together. So we were aiming for a big thing. The idea was to open up the centre 
to turn it into a temporary home for people who were staying on the train station and then find them a house, take another people and then find them houses. That didn't work. It just turned out that we can't do both. We changed the plans, but at the same time, we got a lot of money from that fundraising that Tara Dakini started. So we knew we need to find another way to support people from Ukraine. We decided that the next step will be to support those families that stayed at our centre, but we found already for them a flat. This is an ongoing thing that is happening at the moment. So we have those two families that stayed with us that just need help on a daily basis. There are some unexpected situations happening. Like, for example, Simon, the dog, ate a sock, two socks. <laughs> One, he just vomited, but the second stayed and we needed to find vet and he needed to have an operation. Like, things like that that you just don't expect that will happen. And obviously they're in a foreign country, they don't know where to go, they don't have money. From that fundraising, we could pay for the operation. So to start with, when we were aiming big, the Sangha got involved and we've created a small team of people who brought duvets, turned the centre into the home and helped us in the first days of the refugees being at the centre. But then the work started to look a bit different, which was mainly responding to those two families' needs. After a couple of weeks since they moved to another flat, Someone from the Ukrainian Sangha called Alosha, who in the previous years was coming to Poland to the retreats, he contacted Nietzsche and said that his daughter and sister of his daughter are on their way to Poland and they were supposed to stay with someone, but someone pulled out. So we've taken them to our house and they're still staying with us. In a way, they're another family that we're supporting with our energy, hopefully love and care and money from the fundraising. Nijaban to mention Mariupol. Mariupol is a place that's been completely destroyed. So one family comes from that place. There is nothing there, nothing. Their house is bombarded and they don't have the home to go back to. So they will stay in here. And the other two families are from Odessa. Odessa is in a better place, but still in danger. It was beautiful. It was really beautiful when the Sangha came together and there was a huge energy and heart response to help. But now I think because it lasts so long, almost three months, not everybody has energy to continue the work and it can be a challenge obviously the challenge is also sharing space in a little flat or running the center and responding to the needs of the sangha but also of refugees in our community we often talk about the sangha the buddhist community is really just a network of friendships and most people know what having a network of friendship feels like either its presence or its absence in their life I'm just hearing your stories about your connection with somebody who took on a retreat with you from Ukraine. And I know Tara Dakini was saying that she sent some funds to Mitra in Estonia, who was also supporting a group of refugee women arriving in Estonia. And you get that sense you're able to lean on your community locally in Krakow. And you're also able to ask the Triratna community worldwide for support. And some of that support came very quickly. What is the best thing you would recommend now for people who still want to help? Because that thing of fatigue that comes in where it's either fatigue with being asked to help or not having a sense of where money goes or what you can actually do and people feel a bit helpless. What would you say is the best thing for somebody who's practicing the Dharma to do at the moment? I would say paste yourself. It's really important just to know what your resources are and then go and help. Because sometimes our resources are limited and that's okay. 
we don't have to help everybody in the world. So the second thing would be pick up one family or one person and help them rather than trying to do it on a big scale. That's enough. Rescuing a life of one person, it's a lot. At some point, I had a sense that when we helped those two families, it was so strong. I felt like I can die now. It felt so fulfilling. And I didn't do it just because of my own need for helping others. But it also had that effect that my life has a meaning because I was able to help someone. You were talking earlier about this kind of enthusiasm for helping abating. It's kind of inevitable, but it's not like it's just two or three of us still doing it. There are other people still involved. We've got someone teaching Polish to these women. We've got someone dealing with legal stuff. We've got a few other people. There are various ways to help. I can't say what's the right one or to prescribe something, but we found that like initially wanting to be this hub for people just staying a few nights, and we actually started looking for them to place them in other cities in Poland, and it could have worked, but you make relationships with people, and we chose to go for this. I mean, I had a few friends from Ukraine even before, but they were Buddhists. I never expected to have this many friends from Ukraine, non-Buddhist friends from places I didn't even know they existed cities the names i never heard before and you know it's something magical about it tomorrow we've got buddhist festival at our center buddha day and two of the women that we mentioned before they're coming to the buddha festival they're not buddhists but they just want to come and just be with us and celebrate because it was their home for the first week or two we just like the place got good associations with it so you're mentioning Sadjara. this has been going on for three months now and it's very difficult to know how long-term this work's going to be and what might be needed in the future. Do you think the work of the Buddhist Centre might have to change in response to this situation? Or how do you see things playing out longer term? I don't know if the work of the Buddhist Centre need to change. I think we just need to continue what we do, which is practice the Dharma and create conditions for people to be able to go through the doors of the Buddhist Centre and find what I found 10 years ago. I just think that's enough, like, and that's a lot. Maybe what has already changed, I can see that people are more appreciative that we have a place like that. Because being a country next to the country that's been invaded, and also we see people who are suffering, we see women with children without their husbands on the streets. We now live with a sense of war happening very close to our home. And that means the motivation to practice, I think, is stronger when the suffering is closer to us or is so evident. Then you will look for something that gives you values that will help to heal that or will help to respond to that situation or show how can we respond to it. Maybe one thing that maybe at some point we will have to lead the classes in Ukrainian this is just the very beginning, but if, if it lasts for longer, maybe for months or years, maybe we can lead meditation classes in Ukrainian. Nietzsche Bandi knows Russian, and he already did one class or two in Russian. But Russian is not the language that some people from Ukraine will want to use, although it's still their own language, their mother tongue. they often bilingual. I actually love Ukrainian. Now, I've never had any opportunity to speak Ukrainian or to talk to someone from Ukraine, but now having those two girls with us, there is no other way them speaking Ukrainian and me speaking in Polish. And Polish and Ukrainian languages have 40% of similar words. So actually, we can do that. Either we have someone who can speak Ukrainian and lead classes, or we learn ourselves. <laughs>
I'd studied Russian and Polish when I was at school and at university. It struck me, Poland has often been caught in between other people's political arguments. In the Soviet era, very different politics nowadays. That was a lovely phrase you used, Sadajal, about the breath of war being on your backs. And I'm imagining that's relatively familiar to the Polish psyche, or political psyche at least. Tell us more, Nishibandi, about the project of bringing the Dharma to Poland, because you were really central to that. And there was a really strong element of heart vision in it. I seem to remember when it was a conversation and then a reality from you. Is there a receptive audience for Buddhism? It's such a famously Catholic country, Poland. People from outside Poland might just think, oh, they're all Catholics, and therefore this tiny little audience for Buddhism. Tell us more about that project. I started the center with another two members of our community, other members, Shantaka and Sasirika. It was almost 14 years ago, and it's grown. We didn't know how it would pan out. We really didn't. The first few years, like you said, we're drawing from a relatively small percentage of the population compared, for example, to the UK. I don't know about the USA and other countries. I have this friend I met actually even before we started the Buddhist center. He got involved in Buddhist activities. He is quite pessimistic generally by nature. And he was saying now, you know, probably won't work out. And then after two years or so of our activities, one day he sort of nodded and he said, it might work out. And then I knew actually that probably we crossed some sort of bridge in our activities here. I think people have got a thirst for something spiritual, and many people are actually disillusioned with the church. It's happening everywhere, but it's happening also in Poland. I heard that every year 400,000 fewer people in Poland, the country as a whole, fewer people go to church. You asked also about Ukraine and the war. Funny enough, over the years, one of the strongest reasons for me to practice Buddhism and to teach it to try to help others practice it was to avoid war. You know, I don't want war to happen again. At the same time, I knew it would. Still, we knew it was coming, and yet we such an unbelievable thing. You can't believe it. It must be much more like that for the people in Ukraine, but even the rest of us in Europe and maybe other countries, we also feel it. It's such an unbelievable thing. When the war started, actually, and we were considering whether to do something directly for refugees in Krakow, my brother, who is quite a clever guy, He said, well, actually, you might as well wait. He said, your work will be more longer term once the initial wave goes down and it will be all the more needed. And I feel it is. In times when people are not so certain, much less certain, or what seems so certain doesn't seem any more so certain, people turn to the Dharma, turn to meditation. We've seen it in lockdown, actually. We've seen these waves of people coming clearly uncertain about what's going on in the world, and we'll see it in future. I was just thinking, well, I believe that the Dharma, Buddhism, can be practiced by anyone, anywhere. And you have had some people joining the order in the Polish Sangha in the last few years. So obviously there's a response that's happening and your community there is growing. People are benefiting and becoming more committed and involved. With that in mind, what's your sort of dream for Buddhism or the Dharma in Poland? Well, I think I can speak for myself. My dream is for other Dharmacharinis to arrive. Dharmacharini is a woman who is ordained into the Triratna Buddhist community. It means that they committed to the path, they committed to being a Buddhist, taking over some vows, practice of Buddhist ethics, and deciding to do it within the context of Triratna, which is actually the worldwide communities. We are international. It's not only about Poland. But in Poland, it's at the moment, it's only me living here in Krakow. 
And we have also Upekshanandi, who's a Polish Dharmacharini, but she lives in the UK. She's hoping with spreading the Dharma for women here online. But my dream is other women to get ordained in that context. And for the harmony between the men's wing and the women's wing, no matter what is happening, there are conflicts in the community always. But I really hope that even within the conflicts, we can find harmony and ways to meet one another in the difficulties. When you said people got ordained in Poland, I suddenly felt a huge energy of joy coming in because that is true from two Polish people, Szantek and Nietzsche being here. And now we have how many people in the chapter? Seven or Something eight? Like yeah. So in the last few years, Padmasida, Hrudaya Vajra, we have really strange names, so don't worry, you don't have to remember all of that, but I would just mention them. Shantipala, Maitrinanda and me, five of us got ordained in the last three years, which is a huge success. Mm. It'd be great to hear what your names mean, actually, for people listening. Oh, what what yeah. does Nitya Bandu mean? What does Sadajal? Yeah, I love my name. It gives me guidance in my life. Sadajala means flame of faith. Sada is faith. Jala is flame. It was given to me by my dear preceptor. That is also Kusadevi's preceptor, Sadanandi. My name, Tiabandu, means a friend, friend forever. I almost feel we should just leave it there, a friend forever and a flame of faith. It's kind of early days and you've had this amazing success of bringing people into the Dharma community to the extent that they want to build their whole lives around it, which is amazing. Is it too early or are you starting to notice distinctively Polish cultural forms of Buddhism, the way you organize yourselves or the way you do retreats or the way people work together or do ritual together? Is it too early for Polish culture to seep into Western, in quotes, Buddhism? Are you starting to notice, oh, this is how they do it in England, but actually this is how we do it? I'm smiling because when you said, have we noticed the difference in the ways how we organize ourselves? What came to mind is oh, how we are disorganized. My Buddhist training was in Germany and then in the UK, and then I came back to Poland, which is my native country. And actually, it's much less organized. It's got a very good side to it. It's sort of spontaneous. There are differences. Well, we're definitely gaining a lot from the experience we've got in the UK when living there or in other countries. There is a culture of Triratna that is very valuable to me, and I want to follow that. And we're also Polish people. And that means something. But I don't think I have examples now. We do eat porridge in the mornings. (laughs) Buddhists chant mantras and they do rituals and things like that. I suppose the way anybody could relate to them is their words of power. They're things that carry real meaning and value. There is something, isn't there, about saying them in your own language? You probably both grew up in a way as Buddhists saying all these really familiar, beautiful Buddhist texts in English. So how's it been to start to form ways of doing that in Polish, which has got deeper roots? Well, I remember my first experience when at the end of the five-month Dharma Life course that I've done in UK with other women, for the first time I said it out loud, the transference in merits in Polish, and I felt so moved. It was touching some kind of depth in me that saying it in English doesn't have the same effect. So I knew that it's very important to learn from Triratna abroad, but then to translate it into my own language so that it can have a deeper effect. Another example, I led the Golden Light Puja on this last retreat, and that didn't go really well because there are some words that are, oh my gosh, I thought, oh, this sounds really Catholic. I'm not sure whether people will respond positively. Where On my ordination retreat, I loved that Puja, even though it was beautifully translated. 
we need to also find a way how to do it in a context where well, it can land well, where people can understand it. I'm still learning how to do it. Yeah, how can you translate that to people so it has that response and that meaning in a language and a culture that really means something to them? Mm, I remember hearing similar things from the Irish Buddhist community, but it wasn't just because obviously they also speak of Irish English, but how the words landed in Irish culture was very different from how they landed in English culture, even in the same language. And it took them quite a while, I think, to work out appropriate forms of ritual that enabled people to step away from their own conditioning, again, another very Catholic country, and become confident then in their expression as Buddhists. We should probably say for people who don't know what the Golden Light Puja is, that the main drama of it is to do with letting go of the things that hold you back and moving into a much more expansive state. And I guess letting go of things that hold you back is different in a Catholic country, perhaps. One thing came to mind, just connecting your last two questions, when you asked about what we would wish in terms of Buddhism in Poland, and I had this image of 10 Buddhas appearing in Poland, then when you ask about this culturally specific Buddhism, uh, Chandradasa and the language, I thought it's actually that what needs to happen. We need deeply realized people. We need Buddhas who speak Polish. Then it will happen. You know, I'm saying it sort of half-jokingly, but really I'm thinking long-term. I'm not even thinking of 10 years here or something. Hopefully we and other Buddhists building something that will last for generations. In the beginning, when we started here, we had this enthusiasm to start Buddhist centers in all the Polish cities, and we were traveling to other cities, Wrocław, Warsaw, even Gdańsk, and so on. And then we realized, actually, it's fairly easy to start things, but then to follow it up, you've got this commitment for many years, or even lifelong commitment to people and developing friendship with and helping them with the practice and so on. You can't do it on mass scale. You really have to just make sure your own practice works. You go deeper and even a small group of people goes deeper. And that's how it happens. You can't rush things. It didn't happen very quickly in China when the Buddhism went there. I'm sure it didn't happen quickly anywhere. Yeah, I love that. I feel like we've come full circle there, right back to where you started about going on retreat together as a Sangha, deepening those connections together, really sort of responding in order to then respond to the need in the world. Mm, Well, may many Polish Buddhas arise. Maybe you could start them off, eh? You too. You could become the exemplars that you, I'm sure, already are for your friends in the Buddhist community in Krakow. And for us here, actually, it's so inspiring just to see what you've done already, just making something amazing. You couldn't plan it necessarily as an idea. It's something to do with, we often talk about catching the Dharma, catching the spirit of the Dharma, and you've obviously got it, both of you, in terms of the golden light. You can sort of see it radiating from your faces when you talk about it. It's very beautiful. So thanks for giving your time and energy and love to that project and to talking to us about the people coming from Ukraine. It's very impressive. Thanks to you two for listening. Hope you've enjoyed another episode of Buddhist Stories, in a way, what it is that lights up people's lives. I hope it lights up a bit of your life listening. As I said at the start, if you appreciate what you hear, tell people about it, share it. Find ways to support this kind of activity anywhere from anyone, really. Follow us, follow the podcast. you hear much more to keep you inspired. And just remains to thank you, Kusla Devi, for coming in and being such a pro already. It's a real pleasure. It's so wonderful hearing these stories. It definitely lights me up and inspires me. So yeah, very lovely to see you both again. And just thank you for doing that important work. And yeah, to you too, Sadajala and Jibandu, thanks for coming today. Thank you to the two of you for inviting us and having this lovely conversations. I just hope those of you who are listening to our conversation will be inspired and lighted up.
to find out more about our community and about Buddhism and maybe taking it to the world. Thank you for this opportunity to share. Well, we'll include links in the show notes to the work of the Krakow Buddhist Centre and you can go and visit their website and see what they're up to at Sangaloka. Look forward to seeing you again for further episodes in this season. We're doing these podcasts seasonally at the moment. I think we're about seven or eight episodes in. So we'll say goodbye to you and we'll see you again next time. Take care.